Well, good morning. How many of you, when you get up in the morning, after you, uh, sometimes maybe on your way, at some point you look at your feet and check your shoes? Anybody? I had, in first service, a number of people who do. Um, I had this wonderful experience at one point in my life when I was preaching on a Sunday morning and in the home we lived in there was a small closet that didn't have a light and I was trying to do it kind of in the dark while my wife was still sleeping at that moment and I was getting my shoes together and I had two shoes that looked somewhat like this and as I was putting them on I didn't notice a thing until I came to church and after the first message I had preached and someone said to me pastor do you realize you're wearing a black and a maroon shoe I said yes it's the latest style I always kind of look down at my feet and to make sure that I'm I'm wearing the right shoes together. You know, that's what happens with regard to the dark. The dark conceals things that we'd like to see. Darkness, in a sense, conceals reality. But the light, wonderful light. Sometimes we love it, sometimes we hate it, right? You get up in the morning and you walk into the bathroom and... Uh, you just have the, the kind of morning light and you look in the mirror and you're maybe not crazy about it. And also someone walks in behind you, your spouse, and they turn on the light and you go, ah, right? You kind of see yourself in the fullness of a light. Some, some ladies, I guess, actually have mirrors that have lights around the mirror. Is this correct? That help you put on makeup so that when you're in the sunlight, it looks natural, Right? There are some of us who at times when you actually walk into the sunlight, have you ever noticed as you're walking out and you look at a shirt and you go, man, the sun just shows a stain you didn't even see there, right? Had that happened before? That's what light does. It kind of exposes what seems to be hidden into reality. I was washing windows with my wife, and that itself is a, a, a um, building thing for your marriage when you do things like that. She was on the inside, I was on the outside, and it was kind of yet a bit cloudy out there, and I was working, and we got done, and I looked at it, it looked just fine, and then the sun kind of came out, and she started going, and I got that one, and then she did that. You know, after about the third or fourth, you know, the, the light exposes what we don't see. That's what the Word of God has to say. And my guess is that all of us, to some degree or another, have what I call a love-hate relationship with light. One of the things I talked about last week is the gospel talks about living in the light. That's really what the gospel is about. It's about living in the presence and the light of God, His love and His fullness, so we can see ourselves as He sees us and we can see ourselves for who we really are. That we can get to that point where we can admit in our life and bring our real self to the, to the forefront and come, as it says in that song, just as you are, without any plea, here I am. Well, this morning I want to talk not about the goal of living in the Christian life, like I said last week, is to actually, the goal is not to try and look good, not to perform well, not try and do good, but the goal of the Christian life is to live in the light, honestly, bring yourself before. Do you know what the growth of the Christian life is about? It moves from just living in it to this aspect of what I call loving it. The growth of the Christian life is to love the light. And that's my prayer that we, each of us, will come to understand what that means and how we can live that out. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these few moments that we give you in this week. In just these moments, we would pray, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would be able to speak to us about something vitally important. 
that would allow for us to be more formed like you, individually and as a body, so that we might so be filled with the light that that light would shine in the lives of others. And maybe even this morning, there's a part that's hiding within us that you want to bring forward. There may be someone this morning that, God, you are going to speak to. And you're going to ask them to step out into the light. God, just work, we pray, in your name. Amen. If the goal is to live in the life, the light, growth means loving the light. It means saying, God, allow me to love your light so that when it exposes my heart, whether you do through your word or as I'm praying or through a song I'm singing or through my spouse or my kids or through a colleague at work or through any means, even an enemy, and exposes something about me I need to see. May I fall in love with that process. May I fall in love with the light when you bring it into my life. See, God wants to get in touch with the stuff we don't normally see. There are actually things that that we don't see that only he sees. There are actually things that we don't see but others see. There are actually things that we see that we don't want anyone else to see. There's a chart that um, talks about the fully exposed life. It it talks about living in the light. I'm going to share with you four quadrants just so you kind of get a picture of it on a piece of paper in a sense. And the very first quadrant is that which is known by all. It's, It's that conscious self. It's what you see. It's what God sees. It's what others sees. It's what you're aware of. In fact, many of the scriptures in the New Testament, when it speaks about the light, and the Apostle Paul especially speaks about the light, it talks about, it uses words like being aware, being alert, being sober. It talks about this being conscious. And so there's a sense that it's known by all. There's a second quadrant that talks about that which is known by you. And often that which is known by you can be things like secrets. And there are some secrets that you need to keep secret. Or that you only allow a few into that secret. We obviously know that God knows every secret. But there are some such as your relationship with your spouse and your sexual relationship. That is a secret. That is something that God wants you to preserve between the two of you. There are some things that you are to preserve in order for that relationship to be strong. But there are also some secrets as well that if you don't get them out into the open, it may be some kind of abuse that's occurred in your past. It may be some kind of sexual molestation. It may be some kind of wound that you've had through an authority figure, whatever it is, that you have suppressed or you have held there that no one else knows. And what happens in that, it's like a poison and it festers and and the shame begins to grow and the guilt begins to grow. and, And you have these voices that begin to speak to you. And I believe Satan himself uses those voices to condemn you and to cause you to become far less than what God wants you to be, and it cripples you. And we're going to speak about that next week. What do you do with that area? But there's a couple other quadrants. There's a third quadrant, and these are what I call below the the line, the, the level of awareness quadrant. The third one is that which is known by others. It's that one that that I use um, the idea that someone sees something in you that you don't see yourself. We all have it. And what usually happens is that we live in denial of it. 
And in that quadrant, the person may see it and they, you know, and you may be talking to them like this and they say, you're angry. No, I'm not. That form of denial. And there's a fourth quadrant, which is known by God. And this fourth quadrant is an area that God often wants us to bring to the light. And often um, this is the process of growth in the Christian life. It's coming to, to awareness of what your deep fears are. And it's coming to an understanding of what your deep needs are. It's coming to an understanding of what your basic motivations are so that you can begin to get them into the light and be aware of them so that they don't rule and move you to do the things that really bring harm to you. That's what Jesus was often bringing up to people. He talked to a woman who was, at a, at a, at the, um, who was ready to be stoned for adultery and he speaks to her and everyone's ready to throw a stone on her and he finally says, those of you without sin, throw the first stone and, and they all walk away dropping their stones and then Jesus says to her basically as she gets up, I don't condemn you either, now go and sin no more. The idea being, you've been trying to find out of this deep fear and this need to feel loved and by, through the arms of all these other men or, or people and he's saying there's only one arms that will bring that kind of security. And in a sense, gets her in touch with her deep fears and her deep needs and what motivates her. And, and so often in our life, the things that we do that, that, is, is, that cause us pain, that, that are sinful and selfish, are our ways of trying to control through fear the things that we think will give us life. And I think God wants us to love the light so much that we don't live in denial and that we understand our fears and needs and motivations. We move those up to that line of awareness. And that happens in loving the light. Well, Scripture is clear. The Bible makes, makes it quite evident. Minces no words. In fact, the Apostle John is one of these what I call black and white Writers, if you read the Gospel of John and you read the epistles of John, his language is so strong and so graphic. He talks about you either love or you hate. You are either in the light or in the dark. And he makes this very clear. So as you look at John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, as Jesus is speaking and he's recording the words of Jesus, Jesus says in verse 19, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Again, I like the way the message says this. This is just a paraphrase. Eugene Peterson puts it in these words. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world. But men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it. Fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in the truth and reality welcomes God light so that the work can be seen for God, the God work it really is. And God wants us to get in touch with that. He wants us to be okay with those painful exposures that we'd rather run from. And there's two responses that you will have. You'll either hate the light or love it. 
This morning, what I want us to do is to look at two people in the Bible, one who actually hated the light and how he responded to it, and one of them who actually loved the light and his response to it. I just kind of want to walk you through two different examples when this happened. And I want you to try and guess maybe who this is as I give some description to it. Maybe we could play some Jeopardy music right now. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Both spent three years in light of God's presence through their relationship with Jesus Christ. One was known as a thief and a cheat, and the other was a loudmouth leader. One was a betrayer, one was a denier. One died by his own hand, the other died by the hand of Romans. Actually, he was crucified upside down. When they went to crucify him, right side up, he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord and Savior. Tradition says he said, I would much rather, the only way I can die is die hanging upside down. And that's how he died, according to tradition. One hated the light, and the other loved it. Guess who it is? Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. What amazes me is that both these people hung around Jesus in this light for three years. And you would think it would have some kind of impact, and it did. Because either you move further into the light or you move further away from it. And if you look at the life of Judas, you'll see that as he responded to the light, the response of Judas was to often was to run and hide. When Judas was exposed by the light, he did what people do for centuries, what we all tend to do when we're caught doing something we know we shouldn't, when we're exposed for what we don't want others to see us to, to, to see. He hid. He ran. And I'm not talking about um, the person he wanted us to see. He, he actually wanted you to see a certain part of himself. And he did that with the disciples and with Jesus. But the inner part kept running away. Listen to what John writes in the Gospel, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, she liked to serve, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it at Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. You have to picture how they sat around a table. The table was low to the ground, so when they would sit, they would actually lie so that they would be lying on an elbow. That's why it says when Jesus leaned into the one who loved him, it's, you can lean into that person's chest because you're actually lying. You're not sitting in chairs. You're lying. So his feet are down here. Mary comes and anoints his feet with this perfume. And at that moment, one of the disciples, it says one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Wait, wait, time out. Sorry. Why wasn't this perfume sold for, the money, for money and given to the poor? There's a lot of poverty around Jerusalem and Judea. In fact, it's worth a year's wages. Forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 were just poured down on this man's foot. John says he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And I love the response of Jesus. Because whenever he sees abuse, he calls it out. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Lay off, Judas. Because you're feeling shame, don't go shame her. Don't go shame people who want to pour out the extravagant love on my feet. I think what's interesting here is if you look at verse 6, 
You see when he says he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. You see the external part of Judas. The one who, who makes it look like he's manipulating reality with his words and his actions. Just standing out there, but oh, look at me, oh holy one. And inside, John says, because he knows this after the fact, we saw afterwards the real guy. He was hidden. He was a thief. He could care less about the poor. It didn't matter to him. You know what? It's easy for people to do that. It's easy for you and me to do that. You can do it this morning. You can use words to manipulate reality in subtle ways. Someone can come up to you and say, how are you doing? You go, great, and inside you're dying. Well, that's not so harmful. It just, in some ways, doesn't allow you to get the help you maybe might need. And there's occasions in when you need to be honest about certain things. So I'm not saying that every time someone says something to you, you just bleed all over the place, right? What I'm talking about is a lifestyle, a pattern that, that hates the light. And when it's right to come into the light, you push it away and you continue to hide. And your real self continues to hide. And you keep manipulating reality by your good actions and your words and, and everything else. And that's what Judas does. But I think it's interesting because I wonder if at the moment Mary was taking that perfume and beginning to pour it onto his feet and using his hair, her hair to, to wash and, and, and to anoint his feet. I wonder if Jesus wasn't looking around the room at all his disciples. Because here is this extravagant expression of love out of a person's heart. And he's looking at their eyes and through their eyes. And, and a couple of them are feeling shame because they maybe don't feel that kind of extravagant love. And he actually looks into the eyes of Judas himself, right into his soul. And he sees little stingy, greedy Judas upset. And Judas feels shame because he's seen for who he is by the eyes of Jesus because Jesus sees. And Judas does what we, what we all tend to do. What I said last week, what Adam and Eve did. He does this run and hide game, and the way he does it is he takes the light of Jesus' eyes that are shining on him, and he pushes it towards Mary and to anyone who has that extravagant love, who does these kind of silly, foolish, loving things for Jesus. And he, he pushes it there, and he says, get the shame off me and put it on her. Shame on her for, for wasting that stuff. And he moves into what we talked about last week with Adam and Eve, and it's called the, the blame-shame game. Not only do you need to run and hide, but now you need to take the shame, and you need to blame someone else with it. And that's what he does. And there are many occasions, I believe, as he walked with Jesus, when Jesus looked into his eyes and saw who he really was, and Judas had to run and hide there are times that Jesus looks into our heart and our soul. He actually uses someone else's words to expose what needs to be seen. And we run and hide. And we blame and shame. And you look at this life of Judas, who could have entered into a true and honest relationship with Jesus at many points along the way. Instead, though, he actually shrunk back in fear every time. I call it gutless. It really is. Just think about this. What if Judas trusted Jesus' expression of love and grace, which he had seen again and again, enough that he would finally, at some point, maybe after the dinner, go, man, Jesus, gosh, did I ever feel rotten when you looked at me? I don't have that kind of love. In fact, I feel greedy, and I'm so fearful of, of my security that I'm actually taking money. Can you imagine him confessing that to the Lord? He'd be a different person. 
Imagine Jesus not responding the way that Judas probably thinks he will. Instead, Jesus not shaming him further, but actually loving him and giving him grace and helping him to understand who he really is and what's going on deep within his heart so that he can move more fully and expose his life into the light so that it can be seen, so that he can get healing, so he can move forward. But Judas refused. He hated the light. He refused to confess those unacceptable dark parts of his life, the sin in his life. He refused but moved deeper and deeper into what I call self-serving fear and motivations that he couldn't get real with. Or if he did, he wouldn't bring them to the light. And from this point on, Judas moves deeper and deeper into darkness. His hiding accelerates. Judas actually begins to have clandestine meetings with with other religious leaders. He actually meets with some Pharisees. And and John says, in the dark, he's often using that imagery. He's he's hiding and he's planning and he's talking about meeting with Jesus. And he, he even sets up. This whole meeting with Jesus, he'll introduce them to Jesus by kissing him with a sense of greeting and welcoming. He'll even look good in his betrayal as he hides. Judas was so, so neatly masked. And so can we. You know, the people that you live around in your neighborhoods, the people that you work with, the people that you pass by when you pay the bill for your gas or when you're in the grocery store. There are just people, many people, who are afraid. They live so neatly masked. They run and they hide because they don't know about a Jesus who wants them to step in the light and who loves them. Once again, the night before Jesus died at the last meal, can you see it? They're sitting around at a meal again. Jesus is looking around. He looks in the eyes of Judas. At one point, he looks into Judas's eyes. Judas sees what Jesus sees. He gets up from the room and runs from the room. He not only runs and hides from them, he hides from himself in this act of betrayal. And I think to myself, I wondered as I wrote this, was forgiveness possible? Even at his darkest moment? At any point before, Jesus, before Judas actually took his life, was forgiveness possible? And you know what? What do you think the answer is? Yes. It's a guy, a thief on the cross. He's hurling insults at Jesus. He's watching Jesus die. He sees this life of Jesus. He sees things in him. He eventually stops hurling insults and he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, there's something different about you. And he gets real with what's going on in here. And he says, I need you. I need to come out from what's life of insults and all this other junk going on. And I need to get real. And Jesus says, guess what? There's room for you today, right now. If you have guts enough to step up and recognize that if you step into the light, God will love you and transform you. And if you love that light, he will, he, will, he will love you and transform you again and again. And you will become more and more like him. And you will begin to develop if you step into the light again and again, if you have the guts to do it. And I have to say, it takes guts, folks. So that the character of Christ can begin to start to, to just form in you. And so unable to accept himself in utter self-hatred, Judas runs hangs himself on a tree rather than expose his sin and selfishness to Jesus and to the light. Judas took his life with his own hand. And even in death, Judas tried to run from the truth that was in his heart. 
only to find this, that running and hiding would be eternal for him. That's what the word of God says. That's what Jesus says hell is about. It's real. There is a real place called hell. There is a place of outer darkness. There is eternal place of, of isolation. There is a place where you will eternally run and hide and blame and shame and never take responsibility and become smaller and smaller and your selfishness bigger and bigger. And in a similar way, if you refuse to come clean with Jesus, his grace and his truth, which is available through the light and love of God, you may not necessarily take your physical life with your hand, But you can actually take your spiritual life with your own hand and never find, ever find rest for your soul. There are people around you because they don't know this. They have never had a safe place. They've never heard, not words. They've heard words about Jesus and his love, but they've never felt the love of Jesus, the acceptance that comes from Jesus by the life of someone who says they follow Jesus. And they're running and they're hiding and they're blaming and they're shaming. And God wants them to be free. The response of Peter, let me share with you the response of Peter. The response of Peter was was really different. Instead of running and hiding, Peter exposed it and found healing. He found grace that would cause his soul to be transformed. One of those times that this happened where it was exposed, his his darkness was exposed, was on a fishing trip. If you want to look at this at some other point, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's this incredible story. Here is Jesus. He's wrapping up his teaching. And on the other side are the disciples who are fixing and mending their nets. They had just spent the early mornings in, in, in the dark mornings where they were fishing. They didn't catch a thing. They're frustrated. They're repairing nets. And just as they're finishing up, probably getting their nets ready to go, put them in the boats, move their boats aside, Jesus finishes up, closes the prayer, walks over to Peter and says, hey, Peter, guess what? I'd like to go fishing. Peter goes, you know, Jesus, and he's the Babe Winkleman of fishing, okay? And he knows fishing. Jesus is a carpenter. He, Peter's a fisherman. Peter goes, well, you know, Jesus, we were out all night. We caught weeds and we caught some stones and a few aluminum cans. That's it. We're not going to catch fish. It's mid-morning. All the conditions are wrong. But Jesus goes, you know, just humor me, Peter. And Peter kind of goes, okay, you're the Lord, the rabbi, the one who knows. Guys, as he rolls his eyes, get the boats ready. We're going out fishing. Peter's the boss. They all do it. They get into the, to the water. There's two boats. He would go fishing off with two boats. They're out in the middle of the water, and they're in the deep area. And Peter's thinking they've got to get over to this one area. He knows where some good fish are. Maybe he could catch something. You know, use his own wisdom and strength. He could maybe make this happen. He's on his way over there and Jesus goes, stop. Right here. Let, right here. Let's throw those nets down right there. Peter's rolling his eyes. Everyone else is going, this guy, this is deep water. He's known nothing about what this fishing should be like. And they all, their hearts aren't in it. They don't really believe they throw out the nets. The nets go down. They begin to strain. They feel them tearing. They call others, come on over here, because a few were only going to do it because they didn't think they needed everybody. Now everybody's needed. The nets are so full, they call the other boat over. The other boat comes over. It's so full that almost both boats sink with the amount of fish that are caught. And as they finally get it all in, they're exhausted. You can just see Peter. Here's what scripture tells us, falls before the feet of Jesus, exposed with his lack of belief, his inability to trust, his pride 
It's all unmasked. There's no pretending. He falls before him and he goes, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Get away from me. You don't want me to be one of your disciples. That's what he did when the light was exposed in his heart. He didn't run. He didn't hide. He didn't say, you know, those guys didn't want to go fishing, but I really did. Jesus looks at him. And he does what I think blew Peter out of the water, which blows me out of the water. Because whenever I sin and I, and I, and I find myself exposed in that way, and instead of God shaming and blaming me and, and, and saying, yeah, you're right, you're off the team, you're no good. He looks at Peter and he says, you know what? I am so impressed. It is hearts like yours. It is people that are willing to be open and honest and, and, and humble and express themselves and recognize they need me. Those people who will throw themselves upon me and understand that, that I am so impressed with. In fact, I'm not going to just make you a fisher of men. You're a fisher of fish. You're going to be a fisher of men. And I have to share with you, people who begin to experience His grace and His love and they understand this overwhelming sense when they step into the light and recognize the fact that their sin is forgiven and their sin has begun to be healed when you get real about it and you don't fake it. And one of the problems with the church is that we, we come in brokenness, we recognize at some point we are sinners, and then we forget that. That it's a daily thing we understand that we need God so desperately. And if we live that way, we would, we would impact with light and love in the lives of other people, they would want to know Jesus. Because we love the light. And here is Peter, walking into the light and loving it. And Judas, cringing in fear every time the light hits him, hiding and blaming and shaming. And here's Peter, and even when Peter blows it, there's one other occasion in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34. It's what I call the next crisis. It's the same night Then Judas runs up and hides from himself and runs from everyone else. Jesus is looking around the room and at one point he looks at Peter right into his eyes, deep into his soul. He sees what's going on in Peter's heart. And he says to Peter, I see what's going on. It says that Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon. And it's interesting, it's not Peter, Peter. He uses the name Simon, Simon because he saw. This is really, I think scripture does this. He saw that Simon was in his flesh. He was the Simon who he met that first day. Simon, Simon. Much got probably Peter's attention. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But Simon, I see your heart and I'm praying for you. Simon, I'm praying that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But here's Peter. He, he can't get in touch with what's lurking deep in his heart. In his heart, he's afraid, he's fearful, and so he's going to, in his own strength, stand up for Jesus. And he says, Lord, you don't really see me. I'm ready to go to prison for you. I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, I wish you could get in touch with what's going on inside you right now. I wish you could just come up and say, you know, I'm scared to death, Jesus. I need you. He can't. And Jesus says to him, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You'll deny me three times as you know me. 
but just tells me there's times that we don't even see it. We're in the darkness and we, we try in our own strength to do this. And you know, it's so amazing that God still loves us. In fact, what so amazes me here is that once Jesus exposes Peter's dark side, he's trying to help Peter step into the light to see the truth of what's going on. I want you to note Jesus says to him in verse 31. He says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You got to catch this. Jesus did not say, I have prayed that you will not fail. Jesus did not say, I pray that you won't deny me. Jesus did not say, I pray that you won't turn away from me. In fact, if you read it correctly, he says, I pray that your faith may, may, may not fail even after you've turned away. He makes it very clear to Peter, you're going to fall, you're going to deny me. You just can't get in touch with this right now because what's going on in your heart will lead to these results. But I'm praying that once you hit that bottom, once you come to that place where you're feeling in total darkness, you recognize your sin, when you feel so apart from me, I'm praying that your faith will not fail in the fact that I still love you and am available to you. I'm praying, Peter, that your sin, which you see so big, I'm praying that your trust will see my love bigger. Folks, here's the point. It is not what we do. It is not how sincere we are. It is not how hard we try. It is not in any effort within us that we put any stock of faith. He says, I pray that your trust will be not in you, but in me. And that's where he wants us to live. I pray that your faith may not fail, he says, but it almost did. Do you know that? It almost did. After Jesus is resurrected, he meets with all the disciples, Peter being one of them. Peter sees him. Peter feels so much shame still. He's still living in the shame that he actually goes back to fishing. So Jesus has to reclaim him. He's praying still that his faith won't fail. He sees him, and Peter is in the boat fishing, sees Jesus on the shore, runs... To Jesus, gets to Jesus, and Jesus puts his arm around him and he says, You know, Peter, I'm going to ask you something. Do you love me? You know what Peter's response is? You've been looking into my heart for the last three years. You know what's in my heart. He says, But do you love me? And he says, Three times. He says, I love you. Three times because Jesus wanted to know there's no three strikes in your outrule with him. Grace is available. It is sufficient. There will be people that you come across. There will be people in this church who, who cannot understand and do not like this message of grace because they think that grace will lead to lawlessness. It will lead people to sin. Baloney. The grace of God is the very thing that transforms us. It is the thing that makes us humble and it is the thing that makes us confident in his love for us. And that's my desire and prayer. If I would pray for us that we would have faith in anything, it is in the faith of the grace of God and that he would create within us this kind of culture that would impact this body and would impact the world around us. I um, want to close with an illustration by a guy um, who is a fellow Wheatonite. He went to, I am a Wheaton alum and, and this person, Rob Bell, is as well. And some of you who are Bethel College football fans, you know that Wheaton beat you yesterday. I, I just apologize. <laughs> that was cheap. Anyway, um, he illustrates so well what I believe it means to love the light.
my wife Kristen and I were cleaning up the kitchen. We're picking things up, and, and I noticed this little white ball in the metal bowl, and I'm struck with the fact that I've never seen it before. And so I turn to Kristen, and I say, like, hey, where'd this white ball come from? Where'd you get it? She says, I have no idea. I've never seen it before. And our boys are over here, so I was like, hey, you guys, where'd this, uh, where'd this white ball come from? I haven't seen it before. And, and the one son, my younger son, he says, what? I don't know. I've never seen it. And my older son says, it's just the strangest thing. I don't know. I don't know where it came from. Do you know where it came from? And then he, like, keeps going in the same voice. He's, he's like, it's just the strangest thing. I mean, this little white ball, it appeared out of nowhere. Who knows where it came from? And Kristen and I look at each other, and, and we have this look between us, like, do you know who this boy is? I mean, for a few brief moments, he's some other kid, and he just keeps going with these bizarre gestures. It's like he's been possessed by the spirit of Urkel or something. I mean, for a few brief moments, he's this other boy. You know, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. But, I mean, it's just like a, you know, it's just a little white ball, and it's, Kristen and I look at each other like, this is not that big of a deal. So a couple days later, my wife is home with the boys, and she's in one room, and they're playing another room, and, and uh, she hears this ruckus, and the two of them run into the room where she's at, and the younger son is crying, and he's insisting that his brother hit him. And my older son is going, I didn't hit him. I don't know what you're talking about. It's the strangest thing. It's the weirdest thing. I didn't hit him. And he's going on and on, and the younger one with tears streaming down his face is going, no, he hit me. And my older son is going, no, I don't know what you're talking about. It's the strangest thing. It's the weirdest thing. And then Kristen just says to him, kind of like you don't know where the white ball came from and he just freezes like the, the, the technical legal word here is busted you know that moment like when your junk catches up to you it's like maybe not that day maybe not the next day maybe not for a while but given enough time it always finds us like there's this great phrase, wherever you go, there you are. It's written in the Bible, in the book of Galatians. Like, don't be misled. No one makes a fool out of God. Whatever we plant will end up harvesting. It's like one way or another, given enough time, our sins find us out. It always catches up with us, doesn't it? So my boy stands there in front of his mom, frozen. And then he turns and runs upstairs. Sometimes it's easier to run upstairs, isn't it, than to face the truth. Now this whole time, I haven't even been there. I'm coming home and I call Kristen and she tells me this whole story. And so I'm driving along thinking, like, what am I supposed to do when I get home? I mean, I know I should do something, but I have no idea what to do. And so I get home and Kristen tells me that she hasn't heard a sound from him upstairs the whole time. So I go upstairs. And I go check in his room, and he's not there. So I go and I check in his brother's room, and he's not there. And then I check the bathroom, and he's not there. 
which leaves only one option, our bedroom. And so I go and I stand in the doorway of our bedroom and I look in and there in the middle of our bed under the covers is a lump the size and shape of my boy. And I mean, at this point, he's been under there at like two hours. I mean, it must be so hot. He must be so miserable. I mean, can he even breathe under there? I feel like I should get him a snorkel. I mean, he just must be miserable. And I start thinking about all the amends he's going to need to make to his mom and to his brother and to me. And then I think about whoever he took the white ball from. We're going to... We're going to have to call them and at some point go over there. He's going to need to take the white ball back and he's going to need to apologize. And, and I stand in the doorway of the bedroom and I, I think about my boy and all of his shame. The kind of shame that he would hide under the covers for that long. And so I go over and I sit down on the edge of the bed and I pull the covers back a little bit. and. The first thing I see is just this soaking wet hair, you know, like he's been underwater. And so I pull the covers slowly back until he's just lying there, all curled up with his eyes closed, and he doesn't move. It's like he has this choice. Like, does he continue... You know, does he grab the covers and pull them back over his head and keep hiding, or does he just let himself lie there, totally exposed and vulnerable? So I sit on the edge of the bed, and I say to him, there's nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less. And then slowly he sits up, and he opens his eyes, and he plants the soaking wet head right in the middle of my formerly dry shirt and he wraps his little wet warm arms around me and he just starts sobbing and he cries and cries and cries and he's so sorry and so I sit on the edge of the bed holding my boy with the covers pulled back repeating nothing you could ever do to make me love you less. There's nothing you could ever do. And do you realize that? Do you know that? There's nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less.
circumstance we head down. There is, there is for some a choice today to pull the covers and hide again. To continue to kind of manipulate and try and control all that's out there so that you look a certain way. Or there's the opportunity to just say, I need you, God. I'm ready to just get out in the open. I trust that you're safe. Have the guts to make this known. There may be someone really close to you who the Holy Spirit has been working on, and they're just waiting for someone to represent Jesus and that kind of love in their life. They're waiting. There's a choice for them, and you're a part of that, helping them. I'm not sure where you're at in any of these things this morning, but if God is speaking to your own heart about not pulling the covers back, um, would you give yourself to Him? And then make that known to someone else who you trust and is safe and let them know. And if there's someone that God has around you, would you just pray for them right now in your own heart? Quietly, just say, God, I want to be Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's stand together and we'll close. You know, before we go, if you would like prayer, there'll be people up front who would, just every week we're going to do this, just have opportunity for people to come forward just for prayer. Um, Whatever that need might be, feel free to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that has filled this room, the love and the presence that has been here. Fill us. Fill our world. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.